Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 17. So, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, uh, that's on page 848 in the Bible that's there in front of you. I encourage you, if you don't have your Bible, to grab one and follow along. And uh, we have been, if you haven't been here with us over the last several months, uh, we have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and so we're just walking through one passage at a time and come this morning to Mark chapter 12, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 13, and we'll read through to verse 17. So hear God's Word. And when they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, they came and said to him, Teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do praise you and thank you that even as we come to your word now, and our minds may be distracted and our hearts conflicted, that we can hide ourselves in the rock of ages. We can hide ourselves in the cleft of the rock. We can hide ourselves in Jesus who offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, now as we come to your word, we look to Christ in faith and we hide ourselves in him. And even as we hear your word now, we pray that our hearing would be washed by the blood of your son, that it would be empowered by your spirit, that we would hear and not just hear, but we would be changed by your grace, and for your glory. And so, Father, be with us in these moments, we pray. And it's through Christ our Lord we offer this prayer. Amen. Well, do you know that for years there has been a formal plan underway for the state of South Carolina to secede from the Union? Uh, Initially, there was a group of conservative Christians from the state of Texas that were so enraged regarding the country's increasing secularization and moral decline, that they were planning to move to the state of South Carolina in order to establish a Christian state. Upon arrival of the Palmetto State, they planned to influence elections, gain representation, and eventually to secede from the United States of America. One article reports, quote, A Texas group wants conservative Christians to move to South Carolina 12,000 at a time to form a biblically inspired government and secede from the United States, decrying a national tolerance of abortion and same-sex marriage and the teaching of evolution. ChristianExodus.org hoped to achieve a majority of like-minded Christians in the state by 2016, the planned year of secession. Well, their plans haven't gone quite as well as they had originally hoped, And so now they are advocating for what they describe as personal secession, which essentially amounts to 
personally, you, your family, or the community that you're with, removing yourself from the government as much as possible. Well, to put you at ease, I am not encouraging you this morning to quit your day job and move to South Carolina, okay? Um, As many Christians, I am distressed by the secularization and moral decline that is taking place in our country. Uh, But I can also say uh, that I've been to a South Carolina football game. And I can assure you, not to uh, belittle anyone from South Carolina, not to offend you, but I can assure you that the state of South Carolina is far from being a perfect Christian society, okay? Based upon my experience at a South Carolina football game. However, this does raise questions, this idea of whether we should secede from the union and that sort of thing that these folks are raising. It does raise additional questions. How are we to live and relate to government under which we find ourselves as Christians? How is a Christian to relate to a government that is tolerant of our faith? And how are Christians to relate to a government that is hostile or even violent towards our faith? How do the church and the state relate to one another? And what is a Christian's role in politics? These can be very difficult questions to answer, and by no means are we going to address all of these questions this morning or answer every question that we could imagine in terms of the relationship between church and state. But our text this morning lays some very important principles for us. Matthew Henry, a biblical commentator, wrote years ago, quote, "...nothing is more likely to ensnare ministers than bringing them to meddle with the controversies about civil rights." and to settle landmarks between the prince and the subject, end of quote. Well, it was similar in Jesus' day. The believing community in Jesus' day was divided over how they were to relate and interact with the government under which they lived. The believing Jews at this time were living under the rule of pagan Romans. They were living under the authority of the Roman Empire. And the religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus, knowing that nothing is more likely to ensnare a minister than making declarative statements about how the believing community is to relate to civil authority, they asked him this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in this exchange that we see between Jesus and the religious leaders, we will learn some important principles about how Christians are to relate to secular authority. I want us to consider our passage in three parts. And these are the three parts. And then we're going to make two applications, okay? So that's where we're going this morning. The three parts are an unlikely alliance, a loaded question, and a marvelous answer. Okay, so those are the three parts that we'll be walking through the text. And then we'll consider two applications. So first of all, an unlikely alliance. Look there in verse 13, and we read these words. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, when Jesus, if you remember the context here, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's entered the temple a few times now. And when he entered into the temple in chapter 11, verse 27, you remember that there he encountered the priest and the scribes and the elders. And we talked about how these three groups of people composed what is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the most powerful religious political body in Jewish life in that time. Now, the Sanhedrin was also made up of two theological camps. 
So those were kind of the offices of the various men that served in or, or were a part of the Sanhedrin. They could serve as a chief priest or a scribe or an elder. But then these guys also fell on, into one of two theological camps. One was the Pharisees and the other were the Sadducees. The Pharisees were more conservative theologically. The Sadducees were more liberal theologically. Okay? So in chapter 12, verse 13, we witness here an unusual alliance. Here, the text makes reference to the Pharisees, right? It says, the Sanhedrin sent to them, they sent to them, that's the Sanhedrin, sent to him some of the Pharisees. And, and now we're introduced to another group of people, some of the Herodians. Now, you know the Sanhedrin, they all made up one body. And I said there was two theological camps in that body, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they had many differences um, amongst themselves. But they were both Jewish and they were very religious. However, the Pharisees and the Herodians had nothing in common. The Pharisees were religious conservatives. They were fiercely nationalistic and they were purist. One of the primary motivations of the Pharisees was that they wanted to keep the Jewish people pure from any influence of the Roman government or or Greek culture. So they wanted to protect the people of God from the corrupting influences of Rome. On the other hand, you had the Herodians. And the Herodians were, by their name, you can get this, they were sympathetic to King Herod and his causes. Now, King Herod, he ruled over Judea, which is where most of the Jews lived at this time. He ruled over that area, but he ruled over that area under the pleasure of Rome. He served at the pleasure of Rome, and therefore he was happy to accommodate and embrace Roman and Greek culture. So two very opposing parties, Pharisees who want the Jews to be pure and uncorrupted from Rome, Herod, who is happy to embrace Roman and Greek culture and serves at the pleasure of Rome. These two groups were at great odds with one another. But the one thing that united them was their hatred for Christ. And so here they are coming together to ask Jesus this question. Now this leads us to the second part, a loaded question. Look there in verse 14, a loaded question. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So initially they try to flatter Jesus, right? You don't care about anybody's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And then they follow with this clever question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now the tax that the Pharisees and the Herodians were specifically referring to is the poll tax. The poll tax was taken annually and was required of every individual in the Roman Empire. Uh, One of the reasons that Rome conducted an annual uh, census or a periodic census was in order to collect the poll tax. For this reason, it was also referred to as a head tax because they would count every head, right? And then they would take the tax from each individual person. Of all the Roman taxes that the Jews hated, they especially hated the poll tax, In fact, it was because of this taxation that a a zealot movement began in 66 AD and revolted against Rome. Consequently, Rome reacted by destroying the rebellion and the nation itself. 
So more than any other Roman taxation of the Jews, the poll tax seemed to especially remind the Jewish people of Roman occupation and Roman authority. This question then that the Pharisees and the Rhodians posed to Jesus would have excited deep convictions and emotions among the people. And herein lies the genius of the question. And this is the dilemma that Jesus faced. If Jesus insisted that the Jews must pay the tax, then the Pharisees could brand him a traitor and a sympathizer with Rome and turn the multitudes against him. So if you want us to pay the tax, Jesus... You must be a sympathizer with, sympathizer with Rome, and they would turn the Jews against him. But if Jesus rejects Roman taxation, then the Pharisees would nudge the Herodians, right? Who would then go back to Rome and accuse Jesus of being a radical, an insurrectionist, a rebel, which would surely seal his fate with Rome. And so here's the dilemma. This is the loaded question that they pose to Jesus. Now, the third part of our text, a marvelous answer. Look there in verses 15 through 17, and we read these words. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So, Immediately, he perceives their hypocrisy, and then Jesus responds by asking them a question, why put me to the test? And then he makes a request, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, a denarius was a Roman silver coin. It was the amount needed to pay a poll tax. And actually, there were a number of Greek and Hebrew coins that were in circulation in Israel at this time, but the poll tax... To pay the poll tax, you could only use a denarius. This Roman silver coin was the only acceptable piece of money to pay the poll tax. And this is one of the reasons why the Jews so despised the paying the tax. The coin itself was offensive to the Jews. On the front of the coin was an engraving of an emperor, Tiberius Augustus. With the inscription that read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So, the Jews would have understood the representation of Tiberius and then the claim on the coin that he was divine to be a violation of God's first and second commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. Then on the back of the coin you would find the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which translated means high priest. So the Jews were angry that they were being forced to make use of a coin that professed deity and priesthood for a pagan emperor. So someone hands Jesus the coin, a coin that saluted Roman supremacy and infuriated the impressed Jews. And then Jesus asked this question, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, knowing Jesus to be a Jewish rabbi, and furthermore, knowing Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, you can imagine that the Pharisees and the Herodians were anticipating Jesus to denounce Rome, to denounce Roman occupation, to denounce Caesar, perhaps to promote himself as king. 
Jesus asks the question, whose likeness and inscription is this, as he receives the coin. And with anticipation and excitement, the Pharisees respond, Caesar. And they think they have him, right, in this dilemma. But then Jesus surprises them by saying in verse 17, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Notice Jesus does not answer as an Herodian attempting to justify Roman occupation or verifying Caesar's claims to deity, so he does not take that route. He does not side with the Herodians. But nor does Jesus answer as a Jewish nationalist by encouraging rebellion or inciting a revolt. Instead, Jesus says, Render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. The text tells us in verse 17 that Jesus' interrogators marveled at him, and we will talk further and unpack a little further why this answer so struck and marveled the people. But as one commentator has said, just to give you a sense of the importance of Jesus' statement here, quote, this statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instance it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. It was decisive and determinative in shaping Western civilization. At least in part because Jesus is recognizing that there are two realms under which the state has authority and then under which God, or you could say even the church, has authority and the distinction between those two realms. Now, as regards to application, I want us to, first of all, and there's going to be two statements we're going to, or we're going to look at in terms of application. First of all, we want to apply Jesus' statement, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. There'll be three bullet points there. And then secondly, we will attempt to apply Jesus' statement, render unto God's what is God's. Three short bullet points there. So first application, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Okay, first bullet point. God's people are obligated to pay their taxes. God's people are obligated to pay their taxes. Now, this is one of the most clear-cut, straightforward applications of our text. God wants you to pay your taxes, okay? It is, in fact, a matter of obedience for a Christian. And I can't help but, I mean, this is uncanny, isn't it? I'm just preaching through the Gospel of Mark, one passage at a time, right? I'm just walking through it. Tomorrow is what? Tax day, right? So if you were thinking of not paying your taxes, here is a word from God the day before tax day, right? You really need to pay your taxes, okay? I promise I did not plan this. Um, Furthermore, let me just say this as it regards to paying your taxes. Claims that perhaps religious people or Christians would make that the government is too secular or too immoral or too crooked and therefore we don't have to pay our taxes. Believers are exempt. They don't hold water. Those arguments don't hold water. What is Caesar's is Caesar's. Consider that when Jesus made this statement, Rome was anything but a Christian nation. God had established and has established governmental authority And we honor God by submitting to the authority that He has established. It should also be noted that believers are to pay their taxes in full. Um, I came across this several years ago. A guilty taxpayer once wrote the IRS, Dear Sir, my conscience bothered me. Here's $175 which I owe in back taxes. 
And then it says, P.S., if my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. So for a Christian, we are obligated and the scriptures call us to and conscience demands that we pay up front in full with complete honesty. Second bullet point. God's people are required to submit to governing authority. God's people are required to submit to governing authority. Surely the Apostle Paul would have reflected much on what Jesus said here, right? So he would have reflected on Jesus' teaching here when he wrote the words to the church in Rome in Romans 13, which Don read for us this morning for our scripture reading. I won't read it all for us again, but in Romans 13 verse 1, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, So clearly, we are called to submit ourselves to governing authority. Along with that, though, we can say that in the context of submitting ourselves to governing authority, within the laws and the opportunities that we are given as Christians, we should seek to influence society and the government for righteousness and for justice. And the church, which we have many flaws throughout history, but the church has been used by God in great and in many ways to do just this. I've been reading a book by Wayne Grudem entitled Politics According to the Bible, and he cites an historian who lists any number of ways in which Christians have been used throughout the centuries to influence society for good. Let me just read you a, an account here from this book. Historian Alvin Schmidt points out how the spread of Christianity and Christian influence on government was primarily responsible for outlawing infanticide, child abandonment, and abortion in the Roman Empire in A.D. 374. Outlawing the brutal battles to death in which thousands of gladiators had died in 404 A.D. Outlawing, outlawing the cruel punishment of branding the faces of criminals in 315 A.D. Instituting prison reforms such as the segregating of male and female prisoners by 361 A.D. Stopping the practice of human sacrifice among the Irish, the uh, Prussians, and the Lithuanians, as well as among other nations. Outlawing pedophilia, granting of property rights and all other protections to women, banning polygamy, prohibiting the burning alive of widows in India in 1829, and outlawing the painful and crippling practice of binding young women's feet in China in 1912. During the history of the church, Christians have had a decisive influence in opposing and often abolishing slavery in the Roman Empire, in Ireland, and in most of Europe. In England, William Wilberforce, a devout Christian, led the successful effort to abolish the slave trade and then slavery itself through the British Empire by 1840. And we could go on and on and on. God, by His grace, has used the church over and over and over again to influence society and governments for the good, for sake of righteousness and justice. I think about a current case that's even taking place and kind of playing itself out in public right now in our own country. Perhaps you've heard of the doctor Kermit Gosnell. Perhaps you've seen the recent stories that have been running. He was an abortionist doctor in Philadelphia since 1972 and has been practicing up even to recent date. 
as authorities went in to look at the place where he was performing these abortions, they found that essentially it was a butcher shop. He specialized in late-term abortions. The procedure that he often used was to induce labor, and this is very difficult to hear, I'll just warn you, but he would induce labor, and then as the child began to emerge, he would slit uh, the back of the neck and cut the spine and behead the child. It is estimated that there were hundreds of viable babies that were decapitated with scissors in his office. It's horrific. And I'll tell you that this story, by and large, was ignored by the national media, but it has been Bible-believing Christians who have shed light on it again and again and are calling our nation to a holy indignation. We see a situation like this in which there are and, and God's grace is overwhelming and completely sufficient for those who may have taken the life of their child through abortion. But as a people, as a Christian people, this is a, a, a situation in our own society in which we must speak, right, for the life of the unborn. And the church is called to do so, to work for righteousness and for justice. As we do so, though, as we seek to work to influence the government for good, we also, according to Scripture, must submit ourselves to the government in which we find ourselves living. So, if Paul could call the Roman Christians to submit themselves to an idolatrous, pagan, often hostile Roman government, how much more are we as Christians to submit ourselves to a government in which we find ourselves, which has many flaws but even maintains and protects our freedom this morning to gather together to worship. You notice as well that as Jesus calls the Jews to honor and to submit to Roman authority, in this account with the Herodians and the Pharisees, and he's calling them to submit to Roman authority, it is the same authority that in just a couple of days will accuse him falsely and crucify him. There's no doubt that we as Christians are to work for righteousness and justice, but in so doing, we are also to submit to the government. Peter states it this way in 1 Peter 2, verses 12 to 15. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Christians are to be marked by a willing submission to governmental authority, even down to the traffic laws. Third bullet point. God's people are commanded to pray for national leaders. Surrender unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Third bullet point. God's people are commanded to pray for national leaders. Uh, Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So not only are we to render Caesar honor and respect and taxes, but we are also to give him our prayers. And so we should pray regularly for our national leaders. We should pray that they would know God through Jesus Christ, that they would have wisdom and discernment, that they would act 
for the sake of righteousness and justice, not for their own selfish ends, but for the good of society as a whole. Now, that's the first application point. Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Second application point is this. Render unto God what is God's. And three quick bullet points here. Render unto God's what is God's. The first bullet point. God's people must obey God rather than man. God's people must obey God rather than man. So according to the Scriptures, we also know, as we think about these principles, that Caesar does not have the right or the authority to call for worship, that others would worship him, or to forbid the people of God from worshiping God. When civil authorities attempt to make these types of claims, we know that they have stepped outside of the realm of God-given authority that they have, and they must not be obeyed. You'll remember there's a number of examples of this in the Bible. You might remember when the Sanhedrin insisted that the apostles cease uh, cease from teaching in Jesus' name. The account is recorded in Acts chapter 5. And the apostles responded to the authorities at that time by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And they continued to worship God and to proclaim Christ. We know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are good citizens. They honor the king or whatever leadership is in place in their country. They pay their taxes. They submit to government law. But they also endure the wrath of the government because of their unwillingness to deny their faith in Christ. At this point, a Christian must recognize that Caesar's realm of authority has limits. And we must not surrender to Caesar what only belongs to God namely our immortal souls. We can only worship God, and we worship God according to His Word. And we cannot and must not submit when the government calls us to do otherwise. Second bullet point. Government does not have the authority or the power to convert. Government does not have the authority or the power to convert. A Christian worldview teaches that Caesar does not have the authority or the ability to truly convert a soul. Each person must stand before God for themselves and give an account. And only God can save the soul of a man. Therefore, any attempts by the government to convert a person by coercion or the sword is wrong. Each person must give an account to God for themselves. Now understand, my friends, that from this Christian worldview, right, from this understanding of the relationship between the government and religion and this understanding of biblical conversion comes the freedom of religion that we enjoy in the West. This is the basis for religious liberty, that Christian conversion cannot be forced. You cannot hold a sword to a man or a woman's throat and say, say this creed. Bam, you're a Christian, right? That is opposed to a biblical understanding of Christian conversion and of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel and a Christian worldview teaches that no one can be truly converted unless God does a work in their heart and then they voluntarily respond in faith, believing and trusting and following Christ. So actually, Baptist... And particularly, 
In particular, herald this biblical truth which played an important role in the establishment of religious freedom in our own nation. Timothy George, who is a church historian, wrote the following, quote, Baptists have a splendid history as champions of religious liberty and the separation of church and state. Since God alone is Lord of the conscience, the temporal realm, that is Caesar, right, has no authority to coerce religious commitments. 17th century Baptists were among the first advocates of absolute religious toleration. In his famous treatise, The Mystery of Iniquity, Thomas Helwes addressed King James in 1612 saying, quote, Let them be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them, end of quote. So understand, my friends, because sometimes Christians might be wrongly misrepresented or perhaps in Christian history we can look back at times where Christians didn't get this right. But Christian convictions do not lead us to demand others to be Christians. Far from it. Rather, Christian convictions demand us to allow all to be free to choose to follow their own religious convictions. And no doubt, as Christians, we will seek to persuade We will seek to convince. We will seek to reason with people that they might believe and trust in Jesus because we believe this would be for their good, in fact, for their eternal good. But we would dare not force them. For that is opposed to what we believe about the Christian gospel and what the Bible teaches regarding Christian conversion. It would necessarily be a false conversion, right? If one were to force them. Third bullet point under render or give to God what is God's. You owe all that you are to God. You owe all that you are to God. And I believe this is really, in many ways, the brilliance of Jesus' response here. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to it, but this is particularly uh, significant. Jesus asked them the question in verse 16, right? Whose likeness and inscription is this? And he's referring to the coin, right? That they gave him to the denarius. And they say Caesar's. And Jesus says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So the, the idea here that Jesus is conveying, well, if the coin bears Caesar's image, then it must belong to him, right? So the coin has Caesar's image in it, on it. It must belong to him. Give it to him. It's rightfully his. But you know that the word there translated likeness could also be translated image, portrait. It's the same word in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 which speaks of God creating man. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. I believe the religious leaders would have made the connection here, right? The coin bears the image or the representation of Caesar, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But we as humanity bear the image of God, right? Therefore, give to God what is God's. In other words, you are impressed with God's image. Therefore, you belong to Him. You are rightfully His. Give to Him what is His. Give Him all that you are. And so this demands the question, are you giving to God what is rightfully His? Are you surrendering all that you are to His Lordship? Render unto God what is God's. You might ask the question, well, how could I do that? How could I... Give to God all that I am. Well, you know, there's only one who has perfectly done that. And it is Jesus. We were created in the image of God, but we sinned against God. 
And that image, the Scripture teaches us, is marred. It is still present, and therefore we have inherent value and worth because we are created in the image of God, but it is distorted. Jesus, on the other hand, the Scriptures teach us, is the exact image of God. Same word. The perfect representation of God. In fact, we could say no one has been more fully human than Jesus because Jesus epitomized all that it meant to live in the fullness of the image of God. And He came to redeem us so that the image of God might be restored in us. This is why Jesus came to die on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that through faith in Him, His Spirit might indwell us and change us and transform us and progressively conform us more and more into His image. His Spirit begins the work of restoring the image of God in us. So how? How will you give yourself to God? How will you, how will you bear His image as you have been created to do so? By looking to Jesus who came to give his life, that you might be restored, that you might be redeemed, and that the image of God might be lived out in your own life. Let's pray that he would do just that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord and God over all things. And because you are sovereign and you rule and reign over all things, your word not only speaks to our matters of our heart and our soul, but even matters of government and society and culture and how we're to relate to governing authorities. So, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom in these things. Lord, we pray that as a Christian community and even as a church here at Berea, that we would be faithful to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto you what is yours. That we would give ourselves completely to you through the atoning work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we would, in humility and with grace, we would submit to those that you have put in authority over us. And we thank you and praise you for all the freedoms that you have blessed us with in this country. And then, Lord, we pray that we would also be a bold and gracious and winsome voice for the cause of justice and righteousness. So, Lord, do this in us for your glory. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen.